It's a creature that doesn't have a tongue as we know it. Its body is essentially its tongue. Its body is covered in taste buds. Scientists call them swimming tongues. So this is the icon of taste. Icon or no, an animal with that kind of superpower swimming toward me would send me scrambling as fast as I could for dry land. And scrambling is not exactly my superpower. This nightmarish swimming tongue that Jackie Higgins is talking about, in case you're still riddling it over, is a catfish. They can get pretty big, by the way, some larger than a human, depending on the species. When was the last time you tasted food as a catfish does in order to find it, instead of finding food in order to taste it? I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. The sense of taste, whether in catfish or human, is utterly astonishing. We creatures with tongues inside our mouths have a very long habit of associating various animals with unique superpowers. Even before comic book and movie heroes like Spider-Man, Wolverine, or the Black Panther, we stood in awe of animal strength and perception, and we compared what we can do with what they can do. We have always been impressed by animals' ingenuity and skill, their sensory perceptions, their superpowers. Jackie Higgins, whose voice you heard just a little bit ago, has paid close attention to more than just catfish. She's author of Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. If your upbringing was anything like mine, you too were probably told in elementary school that we have five senses. One, two, three, four, five. That's a notion that goes way back to ancient Greece and Aristotle. But Higgins says that's far too conservative a number. He was wrong. Yes, five senses. I mean, nowadays, scientists would argue that we have uh, many more than five senses. There are senses that Aristotle couldn't have known about, secret senses, Oliver Sacks called them, um, senses of balance, of proprioception or body sense. And so nowadays, scientists would say we might have as many as 33 different senses and maybe even more um, served by dedicated sensors. The two decisions I had to make while writing this book, one was deciding which animals I was going to use to tell us the story about our senses, and the other was to pick which sense I was going to focus on, because I only focused on 12. And I found that when I was writing the chapter, I was getting really to grips with that sense and did a deep dive into it, and I became super aware of it. So each sense while I was writing it was kind of, you know, deeply important to me at the time. As you talk about sentience in humans and animals, you bring up this German word. I've always loved it, Umwelt, literally the world that surrounds us, routinely gets translated as environment. How do you say that this word, Umwelt, helps us to to grapple with a sensory realm that every one of us operates in? There is no equivalent in English, um, but it's a really important word because it is the slice of the environment that we can sense, even in this room. I mean, there's not very many animals other than me. There's my whippet under the desk. Um, but my whippet has a very different umwelt to me right now because his senses are different. And so basically, in an environment, animals have different senses. So it'll be experienced sensorially different between the different species, and they will have a different reality. I mean, umwelt reminds us that w- what our experience of reality is not, it's not, it's just particular to us. My experience of reality is probably slightly different to yours, but certainly different to my whippets um, and certainly different to an octopus. 
So yes, it's 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 a word that is full of surprise and possibility, and I wish there was a, an English equivalent. Maybe we should coin one today. <laughs> well, okay. At what point did it occur to you that you could explore our human experience of the world that surrounds us most immediately, that you could benefit from making comparisons to the realities of animals as they're experiencing maybe proximate spaces, but with their own senses? Was there a time when you just said, oh, this is a great lens to look at the problem with? I'm a zoologist and I trained in zoology at university. And I have always been interested in zoology as a mirror to better grasp ourselves. Um, so all of animals, I think of as our relatives, distant relatives, distant cousins. And so this kind of wider perspective on our species, I think, enables us to see ourselves more clearly. So I've, I've always used this zoology as a, as a mirror to better understand myself in a narcissistic way. So there's this wonderful quote by Leonardo da Vinci, which I uh, quote at the beginning of the book. Um, and he said, we look without seeing, we hear without listening, we touch without feeling, we smell without awareness of fragrance. It's this notion that we undervalue and underappreciate our senses because they circumscribe every waking moment. So every Monday morning when we're dragging ourselves out of bed and pouring ourselves a cup of coffee and, you know, kind of bracing ourselves the week ahead, Every boring bit of that is circumscribed by our senses. So the animals um, enable me to get a little bit of distance on these experiences and to reveal us for the marvels that we are. So if you look at an animal like the peacock mantis shrimp, or if you look at one of these goliath catfishes, and, and you consider its capacity to sense the world, do you immediately say to yourself, well, I might have something like that sense? Or do you just uh, do what I would do, which is suddenly find yourself in, in a position of envy, great envy? Absolutely great envy, because these animals are extraordinary in their sensorial abilities. They rely more on that sense than we do. That sense performs a lot for, more for them. But when Yella Atoma, who is a scientist, a marine biologist, looked at the catfish skin underneath the microscope, he decided this on this madcap adventure to count every single taste bud, how many taste buds were on the, the outside of a catfish. He was struck by the similarity of the catfish's taste buds or taste cells to ours. And he said it reminds him, it was a reminder of the fact that the catfish and we share some ancestor deep in time. Our taste system is inherited from our fish-like ancestors. Touch also is very important for these fish. The catfish I chose to study was the um, Goliath catfish, um, simply because he's so vast. So I love the idea of this vast river monster um, swimming through the black waters of the Amazonian rainforest. So these waters are so dark, the fish can't rely on eyesight. So it has these barbels, these whiskers, the cat's whiskers, which it uses to feel its way. But densely packed on those barbels are taste cells, much like those on our tongue, and all across its flanks are taste cells. It's a solution to the problem that the catfish faces. So the catfish finds itself in these black waters. Um, I think it's also because the leaves which fall from the overhanging branches soup up the water and dye the water. So vision is, is um, complicated for that creature. 
And so the catfish is presented with a problem, how else am I going to solve the issue of tracking my prey? And that's when um, the taste buds are the fish's evolutionary solution. It kind of seems to me, given that quote that you gave us from Leonardo da Vinci, that if we underappreciate our human senses, that you are kind of showcasing these sensory attributes of animals like this Goliath catfish to postulate that maybe we have a range that if, if we're underappreciating what we have, certainly I'm not going to be putting taste buds on the tips of my fingers, but maybe I can expand what I do on a daily basis. Is this practical in terms of understanding my own sensory experience to, to look at the fish? On a day-to-day basis, I think what it gives you is it gives you a better understanding of how your taste system works. It's, I mean, taste in the animal kingdom is, is extraordinary. It's not just the catfish, by the way. Um, lobsters uh, taste through their feet and sea robins, which are these beautiful fish, taste through their fins. I'm not suggesting that we adapt ourselves to be able to taste through our fingers or taste through different parts of our body. Um, although, who knows, some people might <laughs> might be interested in that as an idea. But to me, it's more, um, I'm interested in this connection that we have with animals. When I say this connection we have with animals, we are an animal, but we're so often placing ourselves apart. And everything that I learned in this book reminds me that there's more to unite than divide us. I recently had a chance to visit with an absolutely astute practitioner of echolocation, a blind man, Daniel Kish. He kind of opened up for me a real appreciation for the fact that I have underutilized capacities in my sensory experience. Absolutely. Um, He's done extraordinary work um, making people aware of our hidden potential when it comes to hearing. Often, by the way, I sometimes think that we're not consciously using it, but subconsciously we are. Um, I was walking down the corridor with a scientist and he was explaining how with ease we can learn um, to use echolocation. Even sighted people, if, if their sight is removed, you quite quickly pick up this ability to echolocate. Um, Daniel Kish has developed this to an extraordinary level. But this chap was explaining also, as we were walking down a corridor, as I heard my feet um, hit the hard surface of the floor, that I knew that the, there was a wall coming up. So I think we are using these cues all the time. I am very interested in hearing you talk about the fastest strike ever recorded in the animal kingdom. This is uh, an animal punching at something or stabbing at something with lightning speed. And of course, I'm talking about this thing called a peacock mantis shrimp. What a wonderful name for neither peacock nor mantis nor shrimp. It is um, a mantis shrimp or a stomatopod, this tiny little crustacean that fits in the palm of my hand, incredibly colorful. And Sheila Patek at the University of California, Berkeley, studied its punch And in order to study its punch, it's going so fast that she had to use an inordinately uh, high-speed camera. So she filmed this punch at 20,000 frames a second to slow it up so she could see what was going on. And she discovered it reaches speeds of 50 miles an hour and then most extraordinarily does hit with such force that sparks fly, which is ex- which is wonderful. And the shrimp consequently has ended up in the Guinness Book of Records for having the kind of packing the biggest punch in the animal kingdom. 
there was a lovely story of a shrimp in um, Britain um, that was at Sea Life Centre in Great Yarmouth, and it was called Tyson. And so essentially, if this shrimp, and and wonderfully, it punched its way out of its um, thick-walled glass aquarium, surprising onlookers. But wonderfully, if this shrimp were grown to the size of uh, Mike Tyson, he would certainly punch Tyson, the real Tyson, the human Tyson's lights out. There's a challenge. And imagine if you were punching the lights out of, um, of snails every day. They're now studying what the appendage is made from and um, using it to inspire new armors because the way that that natural fiber, that natural material has been made, is it's super tough. I watched The Six Million Dollar Man when I was a kid, but high tech still hasn't taken us very far into a brave new world of bionic limbs for humans. And waiting for evolution to take us there is going to be longer than waiting on tech. But designers and engineers and even futuristic dreamers like Leonardo da Vinci have long been taking cues from the animal world. You know, biomimicry. We'll have more to say about that in just a moment. I'm Marcus Smith. Here on Constant Wonder, we're wondering right now about what the natural powers of some animals, from catfish with taste buds all down their bodies to a shrimpy sort of sea creature with a mean left hook, what do these powers teach us about our own? I personally keep coming back to a sense of envy, wondering what kind of superpower I'd like to have. And I actually asked Jackie Higgins if she'd ever want to take on one of these animals' superpowers if she could. For me, I think the real story is the fact that we don't know the senses that we have. I mean, take touch. Um, uh, It was described to me as science's last great sensory frontier. So, you know, some of us look to the stars and gaze up at the heavens and think, that's where we need to go. That's where we need to explore. But how about just looking at the skin on our arm? And that's what we need to explore. We haven't figured out that yet. The second chapter uh, on touch, um, the one with regards to the the, the vampire bat, which I use to explain pleasure and pain, you'll discover that there are sensors in our skin that scientists found a couple of decades ago, but they're only now beginning to understand what they do for us. David Julius at um, University of of California, San Francisco, who just won the Nobel Prize for physiology and medicine this year, he'd studied the vampire bat and he's delineating these little trip proteins, which are sensors in our skin that enable us to respond to different temperatures or detect different temperatures, you know, different trip proteins. He's, He's got a kind of ruler, as it were, you know, of, with all the temperatures that we experience. And he's kind of filling in the gaps of which trip proteins trip um, according to what, what the heat is or what the, what, how cool it is uh, with a sliding scale of pain and a, a sense of burning. So just understanding the senses that we have is where I want to focus. So are these proteins you're talking about, are they in the vampire bat? And if so, what do they do for the vampire bat? So David Julius studied the vampire bat and he found a shortened version of one of the proteins that's in our skin that's in its nose leaf. And that enables the bat to detect such tiny temperature changes that were a bat to land on my neck and it's hunting around for a vein, it can sense where the vein is under my skin from the tiny heat changes. So that's what that smaller trip protein does for that bat. 
you know, I get kind of excited about the idea that there are these gradients, these these uh, degrees of finesse that certain animals have, where they can distinguish between just the most minute differences. It makes me kind of feel obtuse in the way mm. I, I go into the world. But often it's this thing of underestimating ourselves. You know, I talk about vision and we, you know, how many colors do we see? And we spiel off the rainbow. We see million, a million colors at least, or smell, which we think the dog um, is much better than us. And it is at certain aspects of smell, but um, they did this amazing study, um, the Rockefeller smell study, where they asked people to discern between scents. And then they did some complex mathematical tallying of the results. And they discovered that a human is able to discern between a trillion different scents. So, you know, we are we are rather wonderful. So when you say a trillion, you know, it's one thing to go count the actual taste buds on the exterior of a Goliath catfish, but uh, any hyperbole in those numbers for mm. the differentiation of scents? I was told that it was more than a trillion. <laughs> the trillion was the conservative estimate. Going back to color and what we see in the way of color and, and what an animal may perceive in the way of a spectrum of, of color and, and the gradients. You tell a story of people, I believe in the Pacific, who cannot see color, a small population of people. Yes. If you would talk about them and describe that group to us, because I think it's fascinating that there is an argument that they have made that they are maybe getting a, a richer experience of the world without color than we do with color. So um, I returned to Oliver Sacks, actually. So Pingalap, which is this island um, that was the focus of his book, The Island of the Colorblind. There's been research done, I think, since he wrote that book that has identified the mutation that these people have. So it, this tiny island, you know, it's got a high street, it's got a school, it's got a couple of churches, a few hundred people live there or lived there at the time when I was doing the research. An inordinately large number of them have this mutation for achromatopsia, which is colorblindness. And I'm not talking um, the red-green colorblindness, the Daltonian colorblindness we normally think of with regards to colorblindness. This kind of colorblindness is every shade under the sun. So they see that picture postcard island with its green palm trees and its azure seas and the frigate bird with its big booming um, mating call as it red neck inflates. They see all of that as... Um, in various shades of grey. And Sachs went over to the island to meet these people with a vision scientist called Knut Nordby, who was also an achromatope. And um, he was very interested to know what these people thought of, uh, what it meant to them having uh, not being able to see colour. They'd never seen colour um, because Sachs used to get migraines and occasionally he would lose the ability to see colour and I think it shocked him. For these people, it was their norm. They didn't know what colour was. Um, and Sachs was looking at Nordby's photographs. He took beautiful black and white photographs. And um, Sachs talks about the fact that, you know, consequently, maybe colour blinds us to more of what the world can offer because Nordby was focusing on light and dark, on shade, on abstraction and um, making beautiful black and white monochrome compositions. So when one sense doesn't quite work normally, it doesn't necessarily mean a loss. It could mean a growth in another area. I want to go to the owl and hearing uh, because of, of all the things you described there, um, I am just fascinated 
by something I had never known, that that parabolic face shape of an owl is part of their hearing apparatus. I was also surprised by the degree to which it amplifies the sound. Scientists have done studies on the inner ears of owls. Basically, they did studies, first of all, on the owl's hearing range and discovered that um, a barn owl, for example, can hear 20 decibels below our lowest range. So the question was how. But when they looked at the inner ear of the um, owl's ear and the sensory hair cells that essentially vibrate as the molecules move, which is sound and relay um, hearing... Um, what they found was these sensory cells and its inner ear don't look much more sensitive than ours. I mean, they have a fovea, which makes them um, more sensitive to certain frequencies than us. But generally, in terms of volume, really what makes the difference, what enables that bird to hear 20 decibels below our range is its face, its parabolic face. It's like someone standing on your roof with a big satellite dish trying to catch the signal. And that is the thing that makes the difference. So to hear like an owl, we simply need to walk around with a Victorian hearing trumpet in our ear. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I take a walk from time to time with my children and we pass houses where devices are planted in the yards with things, little contraptions that emit high frequencies. This is presumably to scare away uh, various unwanted animals from mosquitoes to deer that can hear those high frequencies. My children hear the devices. They hold their hands over their ears. They're just completely bothered by it. I'm at an age huh. where it, uh, my the high frequencies are disappearing on me. And, yeah. and uh, is there ever an opportunity, in your view, to, to be grateful that we, we don't hear as much as an owl hears? Yeah, <laughs> always. <laughs> I live in London. Um, True, but also the other lovely thing about the owl story in continuation of your story and our hearing uh, aging, um, presbycusis, which is age-related hearing loss, which um, we're, we're headed that way, is a real problem. And what's amazing about the owl ears and their sensory hair cells is they're so similar, again, to ours. Again, recap the catfish and taste buds. Um, they're so similar that scientists are looking at them because the extraordinary thing about owl sensory hairs is they rejuvenate. And they did this lovely study in Germany studying owls and how uh, badly owls' hearing ages. And they discovered that owls' hearing does not age whatsoever. Uh, Elderly owl, I think she was about 20, I don't recall exactly, um, who only recently passed away. Her hearing was as good on the day she died as it was on the day she was born. And so um, scientists are genuinely looking at owl ears and owl hearing sensors to perhaps return our hearing, whether we want it or not. So uh, owls are just famous for their ability to follow their prey based on sounds that are beyond the range of what we can hear. And then there's also the aspect of the physiology of their feathers that allows them to fly undetected by people who can't hear them. Scientists at Cambridge University and beyond have been looking at the physics of um, how the owl dampens the turbulence of the air molecules rushing over its wings when it's mid-flight. And so the idea being that if they can replicate that and transpose it onto the planes that crisscross our planet and create noise pollution or fans or computer fans, anything that creates noise pollution, this is a wonderful example of biomimicry 
um, eradicating noise pollution, courtesy of the wise owl. Uh, so, so now that you talk about noise pollution, this leads straight into something else you have considered and talked about in the past, which is the idea that it's conceivable that a sensory organ in some animal here or there might be able to pick up something like the humming of atoms as they vibrate? <laughs> that was a study done. It was a study done on um, the sensitivity of our ear. Again, um, again, that subtext of we are more marvelous than we realize. And that lovely example of um, Cage um, going into Baronek's box um, in his search for silence. You're talking about John Cage, the composer, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And what was the box, the Baronek's box? Baronek's box was built, um, I think, during um, World War I, World War II, I now forget. But essentially this box insulated um, against external sounds. And so the idea being you could step inside this box and hear silence. So it was completely insulated from the outside world. And so in that box, there should have been silence. But what happens when you step into these noise-reducing chambers, and they exist now, they've been rebuilt in different different places. Microsoft has one, and it's even quieter than Baron Xbox was. But what happens when you go in search of silence, like John Cage did, is you never find it. There is no such thing as silence, unless you're in space. And the truth uh, it came forth that he could hear high frequencies that were attributed to his the functioning of, of his own internal nervous system? Did I get that right? That's not necessarily scientifically verified, but that's what Cage was told when he came out of the box and said, what was that buzzing I was hearing? And other people have said, oh, I could hear my scalp. I could hear my skin of my forehead move across my scalp or Everyone hears um, their heart beating, but then as they kind of strain that away, they begin to hear, you know, I, I'm sure I'd hear my joints moving. And then what's extraordinary is sometimes you get um, hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, what Oliver Sacks refers to as release hallucinations. So when your brain is not being stimulated as it normally is by sound or by, by whatever, you then also can, it can make things up. So that's another reason for why there isn't silence. Our brain can't cope with it. Uh, he, he talks of, Sachs talks of musical hallucinations in that brilliant book he wrote on music, I think Music Philia. Um, and he talks of how when people lose their hearing, they sometimes start to hear music. I'm going to go for a little bit of autobiography here. You've been through this process of, uh, it is not an easy overnight task to present a work like this, this book. Um, in, in, if we were to look at your life before putting all of these thoughts together and your life after, is, is there some... <laughs> Pre-sentient and post-sentient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a moment of loss of sentience while I was writing. <laughs> I'm just going, I want to know if there's going to be, if you anticipate that, that your own quality of life is going to change for knowing these things. Mm. I look at the world now with new eyes. I sense it with a new nose, taste it with a new tongue. I do. I'm much more aware of this sensory engagement. And that's part of the message, really, of the book. We conduct life at such a fast pace and we let these things fly by. And the book is asking us really to slow down, consider and enjoy um, what it is our bodies uh, can do for us. 
So just to nail this down, you're writing that chapter, say, on the owl, and you get a good night's rest, and then you took a walk the next day. Were you consciously uh, attentive to your sense of hearing in, in, in a more uh, pronounced way? Absolutely. One of the big messages of the chapter on the owl is the importance of two ears and how that gives us a geographic spatial awareness. And so, yes, I'd kind of close off one ear and I'd listen through the other and figure out how that changes my perception of the, what's around me. Yes, it's a, it's, it, I definitely um, engaged more with every single sense that I was then writing about. We are quite extraordinary. I mean, it's back to that Leonardo da Vinci quote, you know, we look without seeing, we listen without hearing. And I think that I'm asking everybody to slow up and engage um, with our senses and engage with our perception of the world. And the other big message of the book is, is about our broader family tree and the other uh, animals with whom we share the planet. And it's a message of positivity and joy in a way, and a message that there's more to unite us than to divide us. Jackie Higgins is author of Sentient, How Animals Illuminate the Wonder of Our Human Senses. I'm Marcus Smith. You might enjoy listening to an extended version of this conversation, so we've made it one of our bonus episodes on the BYU Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of our show was produced by Tenery Taylor and Addie Mangum. Thanks to Parker Schmidt and the whole BYU Broadcasting sound design team. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio. BYU Radio.